Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 as we continue our series in the certainty of the Savior. For those of you who are joining us and students that are new, we are actually in the last week of our Savior, His ministry on earth in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we'll be in Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71, as we see some preliminary trials in His trial before the Jewish council. Luke 22 And beginning in verse 63, out of reverence and respect for God and His Word, let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him and beat Him. They also blindfolded Him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against Him, blaspheming Him. When day came, the assembly of the elders, the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. For from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we ask that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word and that we might behold more clearly the beauty and the glory of Christ, that we might worship him and you might enable us this week to live more fully for his glory and for his honor before a watching world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On this windy day, I'm reminded of a story that was uh, mentioned in one of my classes on preaching some 35 years ago. A country pastor was preaching. It was a hot summer day, and the windows were open to allow the breeze to come through. And the breeze took one of the pages of his notes and flew it on the floor and Somebody picked it up, and before they handed it back, they noticed it said, highlighted in red ink, weak point, yell loud. I'll try to hang on to my notes today and hope the points are from God's Word. Phil Riken, who is president of Wheaton College, writes these words. The Oxford professor and evolutionary scientist Richard Dawkins knows roughly as much about theology as I do about biology. Unfortunately, his relative ignorance did not prevent him from writing The God Delusion, a best-selling diatribe against anyone who has faith in God. But to believe in a deity, Dawkins writes, is to commit intellectual treason. However, to believe in the God of the Bible is even worse. For he is a, quote, says Dawkins, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genticidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Maybe bully is the only word that we really understand, but you get the gist of what Dawkins is getting at. He clearly 
does not understand the God of the Bible, but it does not prevent him from railing and raving against him, and to, in a sense, put the God of the Bible on trial. But to put God on trial is nothing new. It's been taking place since the Garden of Eden. It's been taking place since Jesus' own day in ministry here on earth. And our passage of Scripture reminds us of that. God on trial, literally. After his betrayal, Jesus was taken to the high priest's house. Jewish law required that no trials could take place until daylight. And so there were two preliminary trials we learned from the other gospel writers. The, the first preliminary trial was before Annas, the former high priest who was no longer serving but who still had great influence on the people. The second preliminary trial took place somewhere between 1 and 3 in the morning before Caiaphas and a handful of the council. But then at daybreak, the official trial began before the whole council. The council consisted of 70 elders and the chief priest. They sat in concentric semicircles, and the guilty stood before them. And in this sense, in this time, Jesus was standing before them. And as Jesus enters into this trial, we begin to see something about who he really is, about his true identity. And the first thing that we notice and we see is that Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. God's prophet, priest, and king. You see, the Jewish council had no legal right to condemn someone to death. That was the job of the Roman officials. And so they had to trump up charges. They had to come up with some kind of charges that were of political nature. And so being the Christ meant that he was the long-expected Jewish king. A, a rival king would have gotten the attention of Pilate. And so they wanted Jesus to confess that he indeed was the Christ, to condemn him. And so they asked the question sarcastically, if you are the Christ, tell us. We need to remember they weren't interested in the answer. They weren't interested in worshiping him. They wanted to report him before the Roman authorities. And so Jesus didn't give them a direct answer. He gave them somewhat of a, a non-answer, if you will. He knew the insincerity of their questions. If they had been sincere, if we're sincere, Jesus will gladly answer. But he answered instead to these insincere questioners with his own ifs. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Jesus knew this from experience. Luke's gospel has affirmed that Jesus is indeed the Christ, and yet they wouldn't believe him. They closed his eyes to his miracles. They shut them in blind unbelief. They'd also refused to answer his questions. Remember, as early as uh, recent as uh, chapter 20, Jesus asked about John the Baptist's baptism. Was it of God or was it of man? But they were afraid to ask. He also asked him the question from Psalm 10, how can the Christ be David's son and David's Lord? And they were afraid to answer because of fear of the people. Make no mistake, these people were not sincere. 
But the Scriptures do clearly affirm that Jesus is indeed the Christ. The Bible tells us that He's the Christ and that He came to fulfill three Old Testament offices as the Anointed One, as the Christ, prophet and priest and king. What does that mean for us today? 19th century Princeton theologian Charles Hodge reminds us of why we today need a Christ and need the Christ. He said this, We as fallen men, ignorant and guilty, polluted and helpless, need a Savior who is a prophet to instruct us, a priest to atone and make intercession for us, a king to rule over and to protect us. And the salvation which we receive at his hands includes all that of a prophet, priest, and king in the highest sense of the terms. We are enlightened in the knowledge of the truth. We are reconciled to God by the sacrificial death of his son. And we're delivered from the power of Satan and introduced into the kingdom of God of which that our Redeemer is the once prophet and priest and king. It's this glorious truth that brought John Newton, the former slave trader, to a point of worship as he wrote the hymn that we'll end with this morning. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. I wonder if that's where you are this morning. Have you come to see the Christ is more beautiful and more believable as your prophet, as your priest, and as your king? Has, you, has he brought you from the place of mere insincere inquiry to the place of worship and adoration and praise? You know, there were a lot of ifs in this exchange. But make no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Jesus Christ is the Christ, the anointed prophet, priest, and king. But we also see in this exchange that he's also the Son of Man. In verse 69, he went on to say, but the Son of Man will ascend in power, the power of God. You may remember from some of our previous studies in Luke, the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-identification. He referred to, him as son of, referred to himself as Son of Man more than any other title throughout the Gospels. And in that council, the title Son of Man would have caused their minds to race back to Daniel chapter 7, where the concept and title of Son of Man were elaborated upon. Listen again to God's word from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel writes, And I looked in thro the throned place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And behold, with the clouds of heaven were came the Son like the Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples and all nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High until came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 
Do you hear what Jesus is claiming? This is kingdom language. It's royal language. It's sovereign grace, kingship, and unimaginable glory to which he is referring. Jesus is saying as the Son of Man that he is indeed the almighty, glorious king and judge of all the universe, invested with all glory and power and authority. You know, this is what gives us confidence when we find our times in dire distress and difficulties. Yesterday, as I preached the funeral of Austin Porter, I reminded the family from Hebrews chapter 6 that Jesus is the anchor of our souls. And when the waters are deep and the waves are raging and life is beyond bearable, it's one thing to know that God cares for us, but it's another thing to know that He can actually do something. And because Jesus is the Son of Man, the Almighty Himself, we know that we can hold to that truth that He is, no matter what we go through, the anchor of our souls. That answer to the Sanhedrin, to the council, caused them to ask another question. A question that further reveals who Jesus is, not only as the Christ and the Son of Man, but they said, but are you then the Son of God? The term son or sons of God is used in Scripture in a variety of ways. And Job, sons of God, appear to be angelic beings. Sometimes the phrase sons of God refers to God's people. Paul referred to Christians as those who've been adopted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He, he addressed us as sons of God with all the rights and privileges of the children of God. But that's not what the Sanhedrin and the council was asking. It was a question of deity. Are you the Son of God? God Himself in the flesh. You know, the Scriptures affirm that. In Luke, the angel Gabriel announced to Mary, the one in your womb will be called the Son of the Most High. The Apostle John, in his prologue to his Gospel account, wrote of the deity, that Jesus was no less than God Himself in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. You've heard me say before, that word dwelt is the idea of tabernacled, and it causes our minds to race back to the Old Testament tabernacle at the end of Deuteronomy. The Shekinah glory, the setting glory, the settled glory of God took residence in that tabernacle. And so John is telling us what we see in the person of Jesus Christ is no less the embodiment of the glory of God Himself. And so he goes on in his prologue and he tells us, and we've seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who's at the Father's side. That word for only is the Greek word monogenes, literally only begotten. There's something unique. Jesus is the only one that can be said. He is the monogenes, the only begotten of the Father. It is a unique relationship, one of a kind, 
There is no other son of God in this sense, for it's the full deity that's here. And that's why John goes on in verse 18 of chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. But listen, God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. The Son of God, God himself in the flesh, that's who Jesus is is and then how does he answer their question are you the son of god then notice how jesus responds in our ears it sounds maybe like another non-answer but what does he say i am as you say it was a not evading the question it was an affirmation of it as you say i am the son of god later jesus would say i and the father are one one in essence, one in being, one in substance. Often when we have the Lord's Supper here, we confess our faith together with the Apostles' Creed. But one of the creeds, the ancient creeds, that I'd love for us to use around Christmas time is the Nicene Creed because it affirms again Jesus as the one and only God himself in the flesh. This is what we confess in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, one in essence with the Father. That's what Jesus is claiming here. His answer was clear, and they understood it. And so they responded in verse 71. What further testimony do we need? We've heard this with our own ears from his own lips. And with hate-filled hearts, with hardened hearts, they were now ready to try him before the Roman courts. But do you see the sad irony in all of this? Here's the Christ the great prophet, priest, and king being blindfolded and beaten and mocked with this question, who now struck you? Imagine for a moment the omniscient, all-knowing God in the flesh being treated as if he was without a clue. Yes, Jesus in his humanity and in his humility, may not have chosen to know who at that moment had struck him. But one day in his all exaltation, he would know full well every hand, every finger lifted against him. These people, in the sad and tragic irony, didn't know that the one they had on trial was the very one before whom they would stand and give every account of their thoughts and words and deeds and inclinations of their heart. The Apostle Paul, as he had the privilege to speak at the Areopagus in Athens, Greece, stood before the great crowd of unbelieving philosophers and mockers, and he said this, The times of ignorance of God, over, God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he's appointed. And how do we know that will take place? 
Paul says, because he raised him from the dead. The writer of the Hebrews affirms that there will be a judgment in which every inclination of our hearts will be laid bare before him. He writes, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We can hide our thoughts and our attitudes and many things we do from people. But everything is exposed before the Almighty. So the writer of the Hebrews again continues, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Make no mistake, though God is on trial here, one day all of us will be on trial Make no mistake, one day everyone will stand before Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God, and give account of every word and deed and thought of every inclination, imagination, and attitude of our hearts. It includes all of us. Paul reminds us that one day everyone will stand before this God and before Christ, and every tongue will confess either by guilt or by grace. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise of God the Father. You know, throughout this night and into the early morning, God had been on trial. But the question is this who was really on trial? Who was on trial this day? That question reveals not only the irony and the tragedy but the audacity of this trial. Who were these peons cross-examining the Prince of Peace? Who were these finite creatures putting the infinite Creator, the Almighty, on trial as if He owed them an answer? As if He was to answer to them? It's ludicrous. But I wonder if that's where some of us are today this morning. Still, in a sense, God is on trial as to whether He's good, as to whether He's really powerful. Does He really care about me? Does He care about this world? Now, that is not to say that unbelievers cannot have honest questions. But the attitude of inquiry means everything. The people that put Jesus on trial in His day were not sincere. Had they been, and if you are, He will reveal Himself. It was Jesus who said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, it will be opened. And so if you are an unbeliever here this morning, Genuinely, sincerely, asking questions, is this Jesus the Christ, the Son of Man and Son of God? Let me encourage you to continue to open the Scriptures and study and read the Scriptures. Ask other believers about your questions and continue to pray, O oh Christ, through your Word, would you reveal yourself to me? And He promises if you ask and seek and knock in sincerity, He will reveal Himself as such. 
as personal Lord and Savior. So I encourage you, I plead with you to trust Him today. Phil Riken summed up this passage and the mockers in a very succinct way. He said this, The time will come when everyone who judges Jesus will be judged by Him. The time will come when everyone who judges Jesus will be judged by Him. And so trust Him. Seek Him today in the day of His grace. But there's another question I want to conclude with, and it's simply this. Why did He do it? Why did He endure this kangaroo court and this trumped-up charges and this trial? Why? Why was He willing to be blindfolded and beaten and mocked and ridiculed? To be placed on formal trial and eventually be crucified on the cross. Why? Never forget, dear followers of Jesus, He did this for you. He did this for me. For the forgiveness of our sins. So that on the day of judgment, we would not have to stand trial as those guilty. But those who have been cleansed and forgiven and brought into his family as his dearly loved children. Never forget that he endured all of this for us so that we might have a Savior who can sympathize and empathize with our struggles and temptation. One who knows what it's like when and from where the next blow might come. One who knows what it's to be like to be mocked and ridiculed for their faith the Father in heaven. One who knows what it's like to endure just injustice and to do so with grace and strength. One who is willing to endure the very wrath of God and the judgment of God so that on the day of judgment when we will all stand trial before Him, we will hear that refrain of grace there is now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that eternal refrain of grace will cause us to worship Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God, and to sing His eternal praises with Him such as Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your grace, you would remind us that there is a day in which we will all stand before your great tribunal. And our only hope is found in the one who has stand, stood in our place who has endured a trial on our behalf, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Lord, I pray for those who may be gathered here this morning who do not personally know the Christ, the Son of Man, Son of God, and Savior of sinners. Lord, I thank You for bringing them here with their questions. And as they sincerely seek, Lord Jesus, would You reveal Yourself as such. 
a God of grace and a God of glory. For those of us who still struggle with questions as to whether you're good because of the trials of life, may we again see you, Lord Jesus, as the Christ, prophet, priest, and king, son of man, son of God, who loves us more than we can ever hope to begin to imagine. Work that grace in and among us as your people, and we'll give you the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.